What do you wish? I was curious. The night is long, and I've been given much to think about of late. May I ask a question of you? Of course. Do you remember who you were before you went to hell? I almost do. It's like I remember how it was to dream and to remember moments of the dream, but never the entire play. Do you see? I do. What do you remember? I was a scholar. Really? I was. In a place called Athens. I think it was a long time ago. What did you study? I was a philosopher. And this was a thing that sent you to hell? I lived as a man during a time when the empire that ruled Athens changed its religion and laws. I believed philosophy to be the study of the systems of the world and our purpose in it. And yet discussion of the nature of the divine became a crime. Who declared this a crime? Christians. To be a philosopher was a sin. And one important Christian was heard to say that the people should hunt down sinners and drive them into salvation as a hunter drives its prey into traps. To think about God would surely not be a sin in God's eyes. Perhaps, and yet, here I am. And perhaps you have not told me all of your dream. I was betrayed, forge master. I was hunted, I was tortured, I lied for my life. In a church, before a judge, I gave up others so that I may live. I became a sinner. And? And they killed me anyway. I woke up in hell. Because this world is insane. And I learned something about sin. What did you learn? I learned to like it. Yet, here I am, back on the surface of the earth. Strong and free in a world where thinking is considered something that should be tortured and murdered. Thank you.
for my second life. I intend to use it well and make wonderful new dreams of it. What's up, everyone? My name is Matt, and welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. Uh, apologies about my voice. I'm losing it, as you can tell, um, but I am daring to record anyway. I apologize if it sounds creepy. Uh, for those of you who think it sounds somewhat sexy, you're right, and you're welcome. Uh, so Justin Pearl and I recently had a chance to speak with author Ed Simon about the recent publication of his book, Pandemonium, A Visual History of Demonology, wherein we talk about, well, about demons. I'll just leave it at that. But it was a really fun conversation, uh, so much so that Justin and I agree that we need to talk about more, I don't know, weird stuff, for lack of a better word. Uh, Just a heads up, you'll notice a few glitches in the audio uh, due to some connectivity issues we had, nothing major. I just wanted to let you know about it. Before we get to that, just a few announcements about our upcoming seminars. On April 26th, Jordan Miller will be leading us in a conversation about radical political theology. Uh, The readings for that are now available over on Patreon. In May, Dr. Marika Rose, author of A Theology of Failure, will lead us in a seminar on the theological significance of Slavoj Žižek. And in June, Dr. Adam Clark, who was a student of James Cone, will be with us to talk about James Cone's fraught relationship with radical theology. We'd love to have you join the conversation. Head over to patreon.com slash radical theology seminar and sign up at the neophyte level for only five bucks. Finally, go over to westarinstitute.org and check out the projects currently underway. The Westar Institute is a partner of the Radical Theology Seminar and are doing cutting-edge scholarship on the history and legacy of Christianity. All right, we're good to go. Here's our conversation with Ed Simon. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Where, where are you right now? I am in uh, Northern Virginia right now, which is sort of like the equivalent of living in Office Depot. Office in Office Depot. That's my general feeling about Nova. All right, I'll bite. What is it? No, just you know, all your neighbors are like uh, you know Washington D.C. lanyards, and it's very suburban and strip mallish, and it is it is what it is. But got it. So listen, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And uh, congratulations on the the announcements of your forthcoming books. I can't remember what they're called off off the top of my head, Um, but you've got some some things in the works. Do you want to just lead with that? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, So the the first book that uh, I had announced was uh, part of IG publishing series called Bookmarked. So the idea behind the series, it's a Brooklyn-based independent publisher. Uh, and the idea is they have writers basically writing about like a foundational book in their own life. So the idea is kind of uh, almost like what 33 and a third does for music, 
that, you know, somebody writes about a short story or a novel or whatever that has had some sort of uh, impact on them. Um, so I wrote about Paradise Lost, which is the oldest book that they've ever done in the series. They tend to do, there's a few, I think somebody did like Middlemarch and, and things like that. But for the most part, it's very like 20th century heavy and like specifically the second half of the 20th century. So yeah. then this idea to write about uh, Paradise Lost and uh, throwback. Wrote, yeah. And the book is, it's interesting because it's kind of, uh, not really literary criticism. It's like a, the combination maybe, I guess, of like, literary scholarship in like, like memoir, really. So it's an interesting um, kind of idiom to be writing in. Uh, I'm done with it. I have a draft of it. So yeah. I'm going to sit on it for a couple months and reread it and make sure it's not like totally terrible and then send it off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And we'll see how that, how that, because it's a very it's a different type of book from what I've written before. Okay. Uh, and then the other piece is uh, with MIT Press. Uh, and it's going to be basically a history of apocalypticism mm-hmm. uh, was originally uh, pitched for part of their essential knowledge series. Uh, and they decided it would be better as a standalone title because uh, it's, there's a lot that has to go into it. So 40,000 words uh, seemed like a, like not quite enough space to do everything that the mm. viewers were interested in seeing me do. So I've, that has only just begun. I've just started writing that recently, but those are the, the two big, things so far i have on uh on the immediate schedule it's pretty intimidating that i mean just the topic in and of itself right there's just so much ground to cover i know um, yeah you have that fear of like i don't want to like leave something super basic out or something you know but yeah yeah all right but i mean you know we kind of skipped over uh who you are so can you just tell us a little bit about yourself like i know you're an author oh. we just talked about that but what else should we know like what happened to you as a child that made you so interested in demons? <laughs> I know, right. Where does the obsession for, uh, for Satanism come from? Um, uh, my name is Ed Simon and, uh, my primary kind of literary home is I'm a staff writer at the millions. So, uh, a book review sites, one of the original kind of like book blogs, I guess it was founded uh, by Max McGee, like 20 plus years ago. Uh, I've been with them for about five years uh, or so. They're owned by Publishers Weekly now. And they give me, my editor, Adam, there gives me tremendous latitude to sort of write whatever weird stuff that I want to write. I get away with, uh, I get away with murder over at the millions. And that's one of the, um, you know, I'm very fortunate in that regard. But then I, you know, write uh, sort of all over the place. I do come from an academic background. So uh, I I have a PhD in English from Lehigh University. Um, I don't have an academic job because it's 2022, obviously. So uh, each uh, here and there, but um, primarily uh, stay focused on the, what I I guess, popular writing. I don't know how popular it is, but I don't, I am more in that kind of um, idiom than I am scholarly writing. And I focus on literature, religion, culture, history, all of that kind of stuff. But in terms of the, I don't know, with the fascination on on demons, but uh, they do, they do crop up, perennially in my writing. So, uh, and this certainly pandemonium is like my biggest example of that. Sure. Just to get back, back to that question though, like what, why the entrance or whence the interest in, in demons or demonology, like what's the inspiration there for you? Is it just sort of aesthetic appeal? Like how did you decide you wanted to write about demons? So there's two answers. Like, I guess the more kind of ethereal autobiographical answer to that question. And then there's like the more practical answer to that question. The more ethereal one is, is I think my fascination 
uh, with uh, demons and demonology and the sort of character of the devil uh, and and aesthetic representations of evil. I mean, that definitely goes back well into like my life. I remember in high school being interested in it too. I wasn't like a particularly gothy kid. I was like, but I was like a fellow traveler to goths, I think. So I I feel like I appreciated them and they appreciated me, but I was like the weird kid in like khakis who had like goth friends. If that if that makes sense. <laughs> um, was, black nail polish and, and khakis is a good look. Yeah, I was like weirdly. I was probably like kind of dorky, preppy looking for for the goths, but they saw beyond my rough exterior and, and into my heart. Um, but yeah, for me, it was always sort of the I think reasons why anyone's kind of drawn to those questions of extremity in those sorts of characters, right? There's just something fundamentally fascinating about evil, not in that uh, like I'm drawn or attracted to it in a, in a personal way per se, beyond the original sin that we're all temptation to. But um, I think that the sort of, you know, the narrative possibilities of demonic characters has always been really fascinating to me. Something like, you know, the um, the Faust myth. I've been pitching a book project that would be about the Faust myth for what seems like years now, and no one has has bitten on it. And I'm one of these days it's going to happen. I'm going to write it. But that particular, you know, that's the sort of story that I just find innately from kind of a creative writing standpoint to be to be fascinating. So the the demonology project here in particular, this came about for kind of more prosaic reasons. But I'd written an article uh, about uh, Jacques de Plancy's Infernal Dictionary is like a 19th century compendium of demons. And I wrote this uh, for public domain review and it came out in 2016 or 2017, I think. Uh, and I was approached by a, a publisher that was like, do you want to write a book about demonology? And I was like, do I ever? <laughs> so we, uh, this was a British publisher that basically would put together the project and then sell it to other publishers. And so we worked on a proposal and they had tried to shop it around and nobody bit. And that was that. And so ownership of all that material reverted to me. Uh, and then I pitched this to Abrams uh, in 2020 uh, and they had just come out with a book about the devil and they were like, we would love to do a book about demons. And that's kind of the, the more straightforward way of how the whole project happened. Well, cool. so let's talk about the book, I guess. It's called Pandemonium, A Visual History of Demonology. I have it right here. Um, oh, awesome. Uh, Justin and I were talking about this not too long ago. This is this is a fucking beautiful book. Thank you. Um, it's got these red for for people who don't who haven't seen it it's got these red embossed pentagrams along the side uh, along the spine and and you know the many photos in here diagrams paintings there's images on every page uh, that really help tell the story they're all high res and stuff and the and the paper stock is it's museum quality it's really it's really stunning thank you so much yeah, yeah we, we, we were talking about it as sort of a strange hybrid between like an academic text and like a coffee table book. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the kind of thing where I can, you know, I can picture like, you know, having friends over and this being sitting out and like people are going to want to look through this thing. And yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got, got away with all of these, you know, high quality graphics. Like what was the a process of, of getting all of this photo material, right? Cause this, this is not a book of words. It is, you know, like Matt said, it is primarily first and foremost, a, a book of images. Yeah. So the first thing is, as you know, and thank you so much for like, for your, both of your kind words about the book itself. And I, you know, when I finally saw it, when I finally got a copy, I was like, Oh my God, like I was floored by it. Cause it is, you know, the design department at Abrams did a, a fantastic 
fantastic job with it. Uh, and I remember like, you know, my editor is this guy named Rudolph Lachat. He's this French guy. And it's a great kind of, <laughs> it's a great name. I know. By the way. Yeah. And Rudolph the cat, he's very like a Mephistophelian himself. I first was meeting with him and we were talking about putting the book together. He was very much like, you know, Oh, well, like, you know, what, what demons will be in the book. And I was like, well, yeah, like, you know, just representative demons. And he was like, name them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll have like Moloch and Mulciver and, you know, so there's name. And he's like, yes, yes. Will Asmodeus be there? I was like, sure, we can have him in there. Um, but one of the things with Abrams is, you know, they're primarily an art publisher. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they, they do the official books for the Met and for the V&A in London. Uh, and, ba- and basically they're in the business of putting together these kind of like high quality art books. The great thing about working with them that was kind of amazing is going into it. I had kind of thought maybe they would uh, be a little bit more heavy handed in terms of what they wanted in the book. And they weren't at all. They gave me complete carte blanche basically to pick what I wanted to pick. Uh, and the order roughly I wanted to have it in and then the actual layout people who have like knowledge of what they're doing were able to do that. So, uh, you know, the text was what I wrote and I sent that off. And then the pictures that I gathered, you know, they all just went off as like massive JPEG files. Uh, and, you know, kind of like, this is picture one, this is picture two, this is picture three. And then they did, they did the layout that they did. Uh, and the fantastic thing about, this is the biggest press or the press with the deepest pockets that I've ever worked with, um, is they had, like a legal department that like tracked down all the copyrights and things. Uh, and they were very generous with me in terms of like ponying up for a lot of that stuff. I think there were only like one or two instances where they were like, you know, this museum wants like a lot of money for this. You absolutely have to have this in. And normally like, no, it's, we'll find yeah. something. Else. And I think we only had uh, two people who turned us down flat out. Uh, so one was Banksy uh, rejected us. I wanted to have an image where it was like this Thomas painting where he had put like Adolf Eichmann in it looking at the sunset. Uh, and I was like going to have that towards the later part of the book and Banksy or whoever represents Banksy said, no. Yeah. Well, uh, fuck that guy. I know. And then listen to this <laughs> church of Satan said, Oh, no. they turned us down. Really? Yeah. So there was, I had like a bunch of pictures of Anton LaVey and they were like, no, you can't. It was like, okay. So like, uh, you know, uh, Ozzy Osbourne was cool with the cover of the first Black Sabbath album being in there. Uh, the Jack Chick Ministries people, I guess, were okay. So they had no problem, you know, evangelizing through my demon book. Uh, but yeah, Banksy and the Church of Satan were not cool. But Ozzy and Jack Chick were. So that was, uh, and then most of it was like public domain stuff, obviously. But um, yeah, so it was just sort of an issue of like, it was a different kind of experience because you're like writing your narrative. But then I had to have in mind um, what images I wanted to use. So a big part of it was kind of writing what I wrote and then finding the pictures that best illustrate what it is that I wanted to say. Yeah. Was there anything in that didn't make it in the book that you really wanted to include? No, actually, I think that, like most of the stuff that I, I really wanted in made it in. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I don't think that like, yeah, I, honestly, I can't even remember what the piece was that like, was a mm-hmm. little bit too, too expensive. I mean, there was some difficulty with the earlier parts of the book because there's just not as much imagery from the, the ancient stuff. Mm-hmm. So a lot of kind of illustrating ancient ideas with more contemporary um, uh, images there. It was like a, a tremendous experience to be able to have that kind of latitude and freedom to pick. Mm-hmm ever you want really yeah i mean the opening with uh bosco i thought that was really cool anyway the the title pandemonium uh as you explained somewhere in here translates into roughly full of demons 
Yeah. You know, which is obviously a fitting title for a book like this. And it brought to mind something from, from Jewish literature. I can't remember where it's probably apocryphal or something, but where uh, it explains how, you know, everyone has a thousand demons on their left, um, which is by the way, a shit ton of demons. And then 10,000 demons on the right, which is like really disturbing thought to think that there's like all these demons around all the time. Yeah. Um, But uh, you know, people haven't imagining these malevolent agents for probably as long uh, as there's been suffering. So, you know, in other words, forever, but putting aside the question of whether demons exist, I don't even know if we want to get into that. It's just like, we're all adults here, (laughs) but what do you, but what do you think an imagination of demons makes possible? Because like, however they're, they're rendered, they're, they're obviously fulfilling some kind of function, can you talk about some of the ways demons have functioned over the years negatively or positively and maybe something about their possible value for us today? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great question. I think it's the, it's sort of the crucial question in the book in some ways um, is you're right. I mean, every culture and what trying to, you know, I'll put an asterisk by that, but most, most cultures that I, I can uh, think of have some sort of imagining of malevolent entities or, or spirits or whatever. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the pandemonium itself tends to focus more. And here's another awful, like kind of pseudo critical term, but on quote unquote to the Judeo Christian tradition, right? But I tend to draw most of my examples from Judaism and, and, and Christianity. Uh, and I think one of the things that's so interesting um, in, in those traditions is broadly constituted is this thinking of demons specifically as fallen angels. And I think that there's a lot that's really uh, important with that because it's a way of reminding us that these are sacred beings in the most literal sense of that word, right? Uh, so thinking about them as something that are both uh, other from our own experience, but also deeply connected to to our everyday lives uh, in some sense. In terms of what's useful for it, and I make this pitch in the introduction for this um, thing that I call demonic poetics, and this is kind of my like standard go-to critical like tick, is I just stick whatever word in front of poetics, and I'm like, look, I made a new thing. <laughs> That's kind of my go-to thing. Nice. But one of, one of the things I try to argue, uh, and I argue it from, you know, a position that views uh, d- demons at best sort of as metaphorical or, or you know, or maybe just ineffable, uh, I guess. Uh, but I think that they do provide, on the one hand, a way to poetically talk about evil that's very um, important, right? And I think that like uh, a kind of disenchantment and using that word very loosely of that type of language from our rhetoric can be dangerous. And I think that like the demonic allows us to measure suffering, to measure evil, to measure uh, pain and hardship uh, in a way that is uh, really visceral and really powerful. At the same time, I'm incredibly cognizant that that comes with the equivalent danger of demonization. Uh, And one of the things I try to talk about quite a bit in the book is how often this rhetoric is also used to perpetrate evils, right? To to dehumanize or other actual human beings. So I talk about that in terms of um, the quote-unquote witch trials. Um, I talk about that in terms of more contemporary things like the satanic uh, moral panics of the 1980s. Uh, And you certainly see that exact same sort of language is rife in our, our political discourse today. Uh, so I, I guess I kind of end the book maybe in a more ambiguous or agnostic way, but I, I, I'm trying to acknowledge that there's something very powerful uh, in the language uh, of the demonic. And, you know, maybe there's something that could be said that's um, 
important or crucial or useful about that while also being aware of what's so dangerous about it. It, it seemed to me that there's a lot of parallels between the kind of work you're doing with demons here and the work that somebody like Adam Kotzko did with Satan. So he has, uh, you know, this book, The Prince of This World, <laughs> he really traces the development of Satan. And, and one of the arguments he wants to make in that text is that the figure of Satan first emerges as a way for oppressed communities to deal with trauma, you know, you're thinking of, 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 you know, uh, the Babylonian exile, for example, um, within the Jewish communities, that's really the birthplace of, of what we would be a recognizable Satan figure, uh, even if the word Satan is older. Um, but then he wants to sort of trace the narrative of how this language gets sort of seized by, from oppressed communities and gets employed by, you know, basically oppressors in order to, to, to dominate. So you could look at the way that, you know, satanic imagery gets used against Jews, for example, um, uh, quite regularly throughout the Middle Ages and, and you know, today in QAnon. Um, so like none of this has ended. So do you see a sort of a similar trajectory there from this? Does demonology emerge in the same way among among sort of oppressed or, or marginalized communities? And is there a similar trajectory in that way? I, yeah, I would say absolutely. And I think that that's a, I think that's a really fair comparison to make. And, you know, uh, Adam Costco's work, you know, is visionary, I think. And, and um, there's a lot that's formative in probably conscious and unconscious ways in terms of his, uh, his influence on me in, in terms of thinking about this stuff. And, and I think that like, it's a crucial point to think about how that language of Satan or how that language of demonology is kind of a means for resistance early on for oppressed groups. And I think that sometimes the, the project of wanting to take like a scalpel of rationality and cut all this stuff away takes away a really potent and powerful uh, rhetorical tool that people have. Like if you, if you can't, if you don't believe in demons, I guess it's broadly constituted, you can't call people demonic, right? But some things are demonic. Some things are exploitative or unjust or, or cruel. Uh, and, and I think discussing it in those ways uh, is crucial. Uh, and, you know, if you do look at the earliest history, you know, one of the things that's interesting when you're talking about the kind of maybe countercultural uh, import of demonology, but very early on in the book, I talk about demon bowls which are these kind of, um, they're, did you say demon balls, demon bowls? Yeah. Not just, yeah. just wanted to clarify for the audience. Thank you. Exactly. I got, yeah. So they're like, uh, uh, kind of roughly made, uh, bits of pottery, um, that have incantations normally written in Aramaic in them and they're buried upside down to capture demons to, you know, if you're building a house or whatever, you put it in the foundation of the house to, to protect it. Uh, and it's, they're examples of like, early common era Jewish magic. So around the time of the Babylonian Talmud and they're kind of spoken against in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, but the evidence is kind of popular folk magic that existed in, in Judaism and early Christianity as well. But in one of the uh, depictions of a demon, they would draw demons, uh, which is, is also interesting uh, in early Judaism to have this kind of like visual component where oftentimes you don't. But one of the demons is depicted wearing uh, Persian military like costuming, uh, like a, a uniform, basically. Uh, and there's this very, in a way that I think is dovetails nicely with what Adam's saying about the, the prince of this world, this kind of understanding of very human oppressive uh, structures as being in some ways demonic. And I think there's something uh, significant about that and something that's really powerful about that. So I definitely see a similar sort of relationship, I think, between demonology and talking about Satan in the way that Adam does. 
it's interesting then because that kind of language is just as readily co-opted as anything else. And like today, as you know, Justin was kind of alluding to the most conservative varieties of, I don't know, Christianity, I, I guess I would say in a general sense, are these massive projection machines. Mm. Right? And then like reading about how, like you're saying, when we talk about demonization today in politics, you know, whether understood religiously or not, has its roots in medieval Christianity and that demonization, uh, the making or fabrication or construction of demons in a real sense is inextricably a Christian project. And you talk, you write about this in the book. And I wonder if you can say something about maybe how that's funded and acted as a, uh, a template for more modern, I guess, forms of subjugation with respect to uh, colonialism and so on. I don't know if that's something you cover in the book. I, uh, to be honest, I've only gotten about halfway through it. Yeah, I, a little bit. I talk about it. Um, I, you know, the ways in which in the in the Middle Ages, for example, how uh, you know characters like, well, like demons or the devil or or Judas, for example, were like very obviously ethnically othered in a way where we see certainly anti-Judaism and kind of the the nascent roots of a pseudo biological anti-Semitism, and then as um, you know, as in 16th and 17th century colonialism, we see Native American spoken of in, in ways that obviously demonize them, you know, like Cotton Mather writing about the Algonquin as if they're howling devils in the wilderness and, and that sort of thing. And it's, uh, in, a, in a psychological way, it provides a, a very potent means of denying people their humanity so that it becomes easier to do atrocities against them, obviously. Uh, and that's the that's the profound danger uh, of demonic language, right? And that's one of the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that uh, demonic might be better used as an adjective than as a noun. If you say somebody's doing something demonic, uh, you maybe uh, preserve their uh, their humanity a bit more than if you obviously if you call them a, a demon. Um, it's interesting to see the sort of mainstreaming once again of like, you're right when you called it, uh, you know, like almost medieval uh, language of demonization in terms of some of the far right groups like QAnon and, and associated um, movements that are related to that. I think one of the things that strikes me with the book is so often when I hear people talk about a group like QAnon or whatever, there's a among people who are more secular, there's a sense in which they can't possibly believe this stuff, right? Like, I think that there's a, a certain like, well, that's just the kind of bullshit that they that they say really deep down, like they know this is all a joke. And I think there's a danger in that, too. I think you have to take people at their word when it comes to their irrationalisms, because, you know, we all have our irrationalisms. Some are, are noxious and some are not. Uh, and I think being able to properly identify those irrationalisms becomes really, really crucial. And, and I think it's important to think about which communities this language tends to resonate in and which communities it doesn't. So yeah. I have a, you know, a colleague um, at Duquesne University, for example, that did a lot of work looking at the way that demonology, you know, is still found in Latin American traditions, for example. Right. So you have these folk traditions where you have these people who are who are economically and socially marginalized. And this language really appeals to them. It's language you're more likely to find in Appalachia than you are in New York City. It's language yeah. you're more likely to find in a uh, a black church than a white church, right? There's, I think there's a way in which 
the power of the demon, I think in some ways, because right, it's power. You can, it's a power that you can use for good or for evil, but the fact that it's powerful, I think makes it resonate really well with communities that feel disempowered in a way that like the kind of comfortable white middle-class Christian can just sort of say, well, that's, that's a bunch of, you know, uh, hokum and we're secularized now. And, you know, we're, we're good modern folks. We don't need that anymore, but of course you don't need that anymore. Right. You, you already have all the fucking power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think it's like, you can see, uh, and I'm not honestly not familiar enough to say this authoritatively, but you could see how something like the language of the demonic would be very powerful in like a liberation theology tradition or something in a way that it's not going to be in mainline liberal Protestantism. And I tend to like, I, I always, uh, I don't mean to like hit on mainline liberal Protestants, but there's, there can be like a lack of mystery or a lack of poetry. I find where it basically becomes like, you know, if, if your religion is just sort of the, the mainstream of the DNC with like, like the Bible thrown in, like, oh, well, yes, I'd rather sleep in on Sunday. Like, I don't know what the point of, of that. Right. I have NPR already. I don't need you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think that like, um, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not a tradition that I come out of uh, personally. Um, and it doesn't particularly, it doesn't resonate with me in, in any particular way. Like I'm interested in the freakier stuff, I guess. And I think that there are, I don't know if it's the writer in me or whatever, but I'm just, I'm drawn to that narrative more. And I think there's a way in which you see the same thing manifest in not only the religious, but also in the philosophical world, in the sense that, you know, we do a lot of philosophy on this podcast. So uh, our listeners might be familiar with somebody like uh, John Caputo, for example, uh, who has invested a ton of time and resources to, you know, do these sort of demythologized accounts of what God means and what can the kingdom of God mean and all of this stuff. And yet what I, I've noticed is a recurring theme, you know, Paul can be recaptured and the crucifixion can be recaptured. Um, but the language of the demonic tends not to be recaptured within philosophy. And I find that, I find that strange and surprising in, in many ways. It's interesting, but you know, one of the things that was so fascinating to me, and I always joke that like, whenever you write a book, like you don't necessarily know, what your argument is to you start doing the actual thing. And so my original argument, I think with pandemonium was like, demons are cool. And I'd like to be paid to write about them. You know, <laughs> um, One of the things that occurred to me is thinking about demonology as kind of a, a counter history of mainstream culture as well. Right. And the fascinating thing with, with philosophy is you're right. Like we, we think of philosophy, especially post enlightenment philosophy is kind of sober state, rational, logical, what, what have you or demythologizing at the very least. But then like demons pop up in kind of like odd ways and thought experiments and so on. So I devote a lot of time to Descartes' demon that he uses as like a foil uh, in the discourse and method, or, or I talk about Laplace demon, or in, in physics, you have Maxwell's demon. And I'm like, all these demons keep showing up, right? And even if you get to more uh, contemporary philosophy where you think about stuff like the brain and a vat problem or whatever, you have still kind of a, a, a sense of like a malevolent creature tricking you, right? Like the demon still remains kind of this like, hidden figure that's used to make arguments. It's like, well, I don't really believe in that, obviously, but let's pretend there's a demon, right? So it's it's interesting to me how uh, demonology, uh, even if it's not engaged with um, literally whatever that might mean, uh, still becomes a, a useful repository of kind of poetic images. I want to return to Descartes later, but I, I think that you're someone who's somewhat conversant with radical theology, to some degree interested in occultism, esoterica, and so on. 
And I'm wondering how these different things come together in your own writing or your imagination. And then I was just curious to get your take on, um, just going to throw this in there. Magic, super broad, super broad question. You can define it however you want and point it in any direction you want, but yeah, anything in that, in that matrix of terms and questions there. So I, I, uh, I mean, I don't have a theological background, but I would say I'm definitely like a fellow traveler to, to radical theology. And it's something that I, I write about in so much as I'm able to, and I find it to be kind of a fascinating way out of the sort of impasse of, of liberal religion into something that's a little bit more dynamic or a little bit more interesting. And I do like the idea of radical theology as kind of to the mainstream of theology as like esotericism is to, is to religion. I think that's a fascinating way to think about it. I'm fascinated by occultism, hermeticism, magic, theurgy, all of those sorts of things. And I actually, I'm going to plug another book while I'm here. Yeah, do it. This is coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's called Binding the Ghosts, Theology, Mystery, and the Transcendence of Literature. Uh, and it's coming out from Fortress, which is a Lutheran press, but they let me do weird stuff too. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I'm really interested about when I think about magic, because you know, coming out of a, a literature perspective, is I'm fascinated by how a lot of the tropes of, of magic from uh, incantation and conjuration uh, and kind of magic words and things like this illuminate for me, ways to talk about literature in a way that I never see discussed in in kind of the mainstream of literary theory or literary criticism. So one of the things that I, this is kind of my magic book, I guess, Binding the Ghost. Mm -hmm. Not that it will help you do magic, but it is my book about, sadly. Oh, it's not a grimoire, Dan. Yeah, I wish. I know Pandemonium's closer, I think, to a grimoire. But uh, Binding the Ghost is kind of like a way in which I'm interested in using the vocabulary of occultism to talk about how we read and how we experience literature. Uh, And one of the things that I thought was so helpful and useful about thinking about magic in terms of literature uh, is it gets to the core of what is so weird about reading. And and this is something that probably since I've been a kid, I've been obsessed with, but you know, you, you read a novel and a novel's literally just um, pulped dead trees that are stained. Right. Uh, And you read them and you hallucinate something uh, that uh, isn't real. Right. Which can you think of anything that seems more magical than that in some ways, right? And it's a it's a weirdness or a strangeness to literature uh, that I find is almost never talked about in the in the mainstream of literary criticism, right? In any particular way. So because there's no such thing as tenure track jobs anymore, I was like, I can write whatever weird shit I want to write, and it doesn't matter. Uh, and so this whole book is kind of a way of thinking about what is so strange about literature and religion by, by kind of extension, I think, uh, and the ways in which I'm interested in kind of the idea of incantation, the idea of conjuration. Uh, so some of the stuff I like cover in the book, for example, um, like I talk about fictional characters and uh, in what sense can we talk about them as being conscious uh, what are the kind of experiences that people have of uh, fictional characters as if they were quote unquote real? And I connect that to sort of some uh, Tibetan esoteric traditions. And I mean, the book's weird. It's a weird book, but it's like a blast to have written. I'm definitely drawn innately, I think, to that type of uh, way of thinking about the world, that kind of esoteric tradition. Yeah. One of the tropes that appears, as I'm sure you know, in, in literature and religion and, and, you know, and in movies too, I've seen enough of the exorcist movies to know that to command a demon, you got to know its name. What, what is it? What is it about naming that allows one to bring a demon under control? 
I think that it's such a, it's a great, it's a great kind of synopsis of what analysis is, right? Like if you can find, find the right language to describe something, you kind of simultaneously can then circumscribe and control it. And you can also sometimes invent it. Right. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of the things, if you think about poetry, if you think about uh, fiction writing, when people invent these worlds, they're mastering a type of uh, type of control over it. I don't want to be like my argument for the humanities is like, it's magic, right? <laughs> like learn the magic, but it's sort of true. I mean, if you go to whether or not Shelley's contention about poets being the unacknowledged legislators of the world are right or not, nothing happens, but through rhetoric, nothing good or bad happens, but through rhetoric to a certain extent, I mean, it has real material effects in the actual world. The president signs a people, piece of paper and people are dead afterwards, right? I mean, there's a type of, not in the positive sense of that word, but there's a there's a type of magic to that, I suppose. So I, I think that being able to properly name things is, is so central to that or finding the right combination of words is kind of just, you know, we think of that as magic, but it's also just a literal explanation of how language works to a certain extent. You know, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. So this is maybe moving a little away from the the demon aspect, but I've been rereading um, the two treatises of government by Locke. Mm. And one of the things that's really jumping out to me this time is as I'm working through it is it is all about like textual analysis. That's almost all that he's doing. He is he is responding to text and he's giving readings of the, almost entirely the Bible. Right. So we have this arguably the founding document of Western liberalism that has gone on to conquer the entire world that has reshaped what private property means and what freedom means and what liberty means and democracy and all of these things. This this foundational text. And what is it doing? It's arguing about who gets to get Adam's, you know, who's the proper heir of Adam? Is it Cain or Abel? And these sorts of questions are what are dominating. And so it's this interesting way where this entire political universe that we find ourselves in can be in some ways traced back to somebody arguing about words on a page. And, and there is, I think, something truly and sort of terrifyingly magical about that. Yeah. And I think it's important too, and arguing about words that are supposed to be sacred words. Right. And so um, how much of the uh, myth of the enlightenment, especially as it's kind of promulgated by more reactionary forces today, uh, uh, of, um, you know, going, going back to Descartes after he had his kind of visions that inspired the discourse, he went and he made uh, a pilgrimage to a shrine to the Virgin. Right. So you have in a very similar way to, to Locke, you have a figure who's identified with rationalism, with the sort of beginnings of like, uh, individualism and so on. And he's doing something that like, I think people would dismiss as like medieval or whatever. And then I, you know, my, I'm very much about not dismissing it. I think it's important uh, to kind of honor and be aware of that sort of thing. And in part too, it's because so many of the systems that we either thrive or suffer under are basically theological. I mean, I, I've always taken it as a principle that there is uh, anything that is worth rebelling against is fundamentally religious at some level and any means of resistance worth encouraging is itself fundamentally religious. Right. And so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eugene McCarahar's work. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name. No, he, he wrote a great book called enchantments of Mayment, And he basically argues. Oh yeah. 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 I have the book. It's sitting on, it's a brick. It's sitting on my uh, <laughs> shelf, just staring at me. Like, I know, me. I know. 
it's it's ginormous. It's like two thousand pages or something. Uh, and he basically argues that uh, not just neoliberal capitalism, capitalism period, uh, is its own kind of like dark religion that is centered around a kind of honoring or worshiping of of a god that's basically the invisible hand. And it seems to me you know, when we're being pushed to the edge of ecological collapse, there's nothing rational about that, right? I mean, it's fundamentally irrational. Uh, and I think understanding that as a type of uh, occult faith almost, at least diagnostically makes a certain amount of sense. But a big part of that is kind of breaking ourselves of the myth of secularism. And I never think yeah. of, yeah. you know, I think the enlightenment is like, you know, the enlightenment's many things, obviously the problem is whenever it's talked about in kind of a Jordan Peterson way where it becomes like one simple, thing, which it's not. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of like ultra liberal Protestantism at the end of the day, right? To a certain extent, or, or it can be certainly in the kind of American manifestation of it. So I think breaking ourselves of that myth of secularism and understanding that all of these things are religions, just asking ourselves, what religion do we want to be part of is sort of the question to ask ourselves. And that's totally independent from whether we believe in like old man, Nobo daddy or not. Right. That's a different issue. Entirely. Well, that, that is spoken like a proper radical theologian. Well, thank Justin, you, Justin. Did you want to uh, add anything to that? Yeah, no, I was just wanted to jump in on that, on this economic component that you're bringing up here, because what it brings to mind is the way that op opposition to capitalism has almost always been framed in at least quasi-religious terms, yeah. right? So, so you have like the really early anti-enclosure stuff. So somebody like Gerard Winstonley or something like that in the, in the 17th century. But even if you go to like, you know, Marxist capital, right? You know, Derrida can write a book called Specters of Marx, uh, which is entirely framed about the part like, have y'all noticed that Marx is always talking about ghosts and stuff? Um, yeah. So it's it's ghosts and it's vampires and it's werewolves. These become this is the language that yeah. is used to try to make sense of capitalism for those who, who want to oppose capitalism in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always interesting to me that, I mean, the most consistently anti-capitalist Western leader is the Pope, like, you know, bar none. And that was true when Ratzinger was the Pope as well. And it's kind of, it's like there's this uh, way in which um, I think the liberal mainstream, the more secular mainstream is just so oftentimes, and I'm obviously speaking with a broad brush, but they seemingly are so allergic to religion or just don't take it seriously enough that whenever, you know, Pope Francis says something anti-capitalist, they're like, can you believe even the Pope is saying that? And I'm like, yes, because they've all said that, because that's like, that's the intrinsic to the project, right? Um, and it's, it. you're right. I mean, you go back, it's caused sort of historical blinders with being able to properly interpret a lot of historical writings, obviously. I mean, you go back to when Stanley, I mean, it's drenched in religion. I mean, all the anti-enclosure stuff was profoundly religious. I mean, the ranchers and the levelers and the diggers, they were all uh, radical dissenting nonconformists who were enmeshed in the radical reformation. And, uh, you know, you'll see sometimes even great historiographers, like someone like Christopher Hill, who's so brilliant, but he'll sometimes interpret them as like, well, they had to use religious language to speak to like simpler people who didn't understand what they were saying. And I was like, no, I don't think he was like an economist who was like, I don't think his economics made him speak this way. I think his religion made him speak that way economically. Uh, and I think yeah. a, a really crucial thing to remember.
before uh, we run out of time and before I forget, I want to return to the thing about Descartes. I'm interested in this question of the demonic as machinic. And, you know, Descartes famously wonders, as we know, if he's being deceived by a, an evil demon, which is, yeah. you know, of course, completely fucking neurotic. But I think part of what that fear entails is is being under the influence, you know, unwittingly of, of some external agent that we're acting as automatons at times. And this is horrifying for someone who wants to defend a notion of, of free will, right? So the demonic is the machinic. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think there's this interesting inversion or, or maybe it's again, a projection of some kind where Descartes fear of the machinic or the demonic as considered from the point of individual free will results in this exteriorization of a completely machinic, which is to say a demonic universe, just a theory. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, well, it's interesting because you definitely see that in, in Laplace demon uh, as well, where it's sort of this idea that if you could have a being uh, that is aware of the location and the momentum of every single particle in the universe, uh, that that being would then be able to perfectly calculate exactly how everything would happen in the future with absolute precision, right? Uh, and Laplace writes about it specifically as a demon. But it sounds also like Calvin's God, basically, right? I mean, it's yeah. sort of, uh, you know, once you have this kind of, you you remove any sort of agency from, from the universe, uh, you drain it of its vitalism and it becomes purely mechanical. Uh, and I think you're right. It is, it's a fascinating projection wherein Laplace was not a Calvinist, obviously, or I don't think he was, but you have, you have this kind of way in which I feel like with the advent of things like positivism and puritanism and so on uh you have a kind of rendering of the universe in a particularly mechanical way and you have kind of a bifurcated on the one hand like a celebration of like the the efficiency and the pragmatism and the utility of that system but i think you're right you have a like a neurotic fear of that same system as well so it make it would make sense to me that you have that kind of uh projection there but i, I definitely think that those things are intimately connected you know, a, a piece of media that I think really captured that terrifying, demonic, but also sort of spiritual, godly, but also kind of sci-fi mechanical uh, aspect of this would be something like Devs, which is um, this sort of criminally underrated show. Um, it was uh, Alex Garland who did like Annihilation and Ex Machina and all of that. Uh, it's a show he did uh, for um, Hulu uh, with the guy from Parks and Rec um, as the as the star. But it's it's all about sort of a tech billionaire whose wife and daughter die in a tragic car accident. And so he decides, I'm going to try to create a computer that can perfectly determine, basically it's LaPlanche's demon. I want a computer that can determine every molecule and that can map out into indefinitely into the future that we can know everything mm -hmm. so that this doesn't happen again. And what's revealed is, is the, the sort of dark terror that underlies something like that, that there was something um, brutally inhuman, I guess you could say something truly demonic about that. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I think that part of it, I don't know if it's like vestiges from like a kind of misspent Catholic youth or like a kind of like a, uh, inclination to a type of anarcho-medievalism or something, but I always find that like that kind of uh, the god of efficiency that emerges in the early modern era does strike me as demonic. I mean, I always feel like 
you know, that the, the classic question of is Milton on Satan's side? You're like, well, yeah, if he's fighting against like Calvin's God, of course you'd be on like Satan's side in that, in that particular instance. Um, but yeah, it's a, a great example too, of how these kind of categories are, are always shifting and moving in terms of who you, uh, who you speak of them in terms of really. Yeah. To that point, I, I often think that the greatest forms of rebellion today are, are just to do nothing. <laughs> I, I i refuse the bartleby approach it's the yeah, bartleby yeah, yeah. approach yeah I prefer exactly. not to. you know i taught bartleby once uh and this was when i was at lehigh and most of the students were like finance or engineering and they, like hated bartleby and it hurt my heart i was like i was like isn't this guy great and they're like oh he needs to like work harder and i was like oh my god <laughs> i was like this is the youth are not all right it was very <laughs> discouraging they've gotten better actually over the last few years which i guess apocalypse has a way of doing that but uh you know so to return to the the book for for a second uh was there any story that is a favorite of yours so my favorite i think my favorite part my two favorite chapters to write were the Renaissance chapter. Cause that's like my academic grounding. And I, it was like return to what you love. So I'm drawn to the Miltonic stuff, hence the title of the book uh, and the Faust myth. I'm always fascinated about because I think it says something uh, intrinsic about what it means to be human. The sort of Faustian question that I find to be like a particularly uh, universal one. Uh, and then I was really drawn to the modern section. And originally the book was going to end uh, in the 19th century. And the editor was like, no, no, we want to have all the good horror movie stuff in. Uh, and I was really interested to write about the demonic in terms of um, 20th century history. And like I connected it to, you know, like Hannah Arendt and and, and Walter Benjamin and all these kinds of figures, um, you know, as well as like Aleister Crawley and, and Anton LaVey. I found that story to maybe be the most surprising to me. And it was the one that I sort of enjoyed uh, writing the most. Which part, what, which aspect about it? Which aspect of the modern, uh, the modern section. Uh, some of the Aleister Crawley stuff was really fascinating to me, sort of being able to connect him. I connected him to H.P. Lovecraft uh, and then sort of wrote about both of them in terms of high modernism. So thinking about uh, them as, as parts of this movement that they're both kind of maybe like shunted out of they're a little like they're not quite as they're more disreputable than like a like a T.S. Eliot or something uh, and connecting them to, to that sort of way of thinking about things. And if I have like a particularly anecdote that I, I can I can think of right now off the top of my head. But like I think that general time period was fascinating to focus on. That's fair. Um, my, the, the only question I have left is how many copies of the Necronomicon do you own? I have no copies of the Necronomicon. Oh, sad. I'll send you one. <laughs> I know. I know. I was, uh, that was one of the things, and I read about this in the introduction, if you like, as a parting kind of story, but the Necronomicon, and there's many different editions and versions, obviously, but one of the most popular ones is called the Simon Necronomicon. Uh, and it's listed on Amazon as by Ed Simon for editor being Simon, but people will think that it's me. And I had this uh, very uncanny kind of experience that, that I write about where like 10 years ago or something, I was on Amazon and I was looking up copies of the Necronomicon and it said by Ed Simon. And I was like, oh, well, it's some sort of like computer error. It like thinks that like I've signed in or something. And then I realized, no, I was listed as the author. So I had this kind of like horrific moment where I was like, am I the author of the Necronomicon? But I used to occasionally get emails from people that thought I was, because I read enough about demons, um, that I was whoever the pseudonymous author of the Necronomicon is. And they'd be very like friendly and kind and 
person is like, no, I'm not. I'm not the author. Did they did they think you're the mad Arab? They want all your secrets. Yeah, I, they they would pry me, but I never let any of them go. So that was the sort of uh, that was the sort of score there. Yeah. Well, listen, this was great. I, I don't know if you'd be up for it, but I'd love to have you back and talk yeah. about your forthcoming projects. Yeah, I'd absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank this you, man. Fantastic. All right, I'll see you. Thanks right. so much. Bye. Have a good one. Thanks again to Ed. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to become a member of the Radical Theology Seminar, go to patreon.com slash radicaltheologyseminar. Peace.